Chapter 9 of A King in Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Crown. A King in Babylon by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 9. We were four hundred miles up the Nile when I awoke next morning, and running close beside the bank of that historic river. I confess I was disappointed in it, and the squalid little mud villages strung along it did not seem fit for anything but pigs. I had heard a good deal about Egypt's progress under English rule, but it must have been in some other line than house-building. The home of the average Egyptian, so far as I was able to observe it, consists of four low mud walls, a straw roof about as watertight as a sieve, and a mud floor. There is a hole for a door, and sometimes one or two others for windows, and inside are a few earthenware pots and wooden dishes, and a pile of dung for fuel, and thousands of flies, not to mention other vermin. We crossed the river on a long iron bridge, while we were eating breakfast, and presently we ran past some most amazing ruins, and then we were at Luxor. As we piled out of the carriage, a thin little man, wearing a big white helmet and with very bright eyes and eager face, half concealed by a snow-white beard, hastened toward us, and instinctively addressed himself to Creel. This is Mr. Creel? Yes, said Creel. I'm Davis, said the little man, and the two shook hands. I have everything ready. Good, said Creel. When can we start? We can start this evening, Davis answered, looking at him with a certain anxiety. Good, said Creel again. We'll be ready. The little man's face brightened instantly. Mustafa, Mustafa, he shouted, and a black-bearded pirate, wearing a dark blue turban and long black burnoose, who had been hovering in the offing, strode forward. This is Mustafa, our dragoman, Davis explained, and Creel nodded to the pirate, eyeing him admiringly. I knew he had already placed him in the picture. We start two hours before sundown, Davis continued to the dragoman, who bowed. All will be ready, sir, he said. You will see that the luggage is attended to, continued Davis and indicated the impressive pile of our belongings, which had come up in the car with us and were now assembled on the platform. I will tell Digby to make certain that nothing is overlooked, said Creel. There isn't a thing there we don't absolutely need. Mustafa is very careful. The best dragoman in Luxor, said Davis, while Mustafa grinned with pleasure, disclosing a formidable row of very white teeth. But of course it will do no harm to check him up whereupon Creel called Digby forward and introduced him, and then he introduced the rest of us, and Professor Davis shook hands hastily all round and said he was very glad to meet us, but his thoughts evidently were far away, out in the desert, I suppose, about that excavation of his. Only when he came to Mademoiselle Roland was his interest aroused. The quick glance he shot her from his keen little eyes was almost startled, but it faded in a moment as though he had decided she was not worth while after all, and he turned back to Creel. 
The ladies will wish to go to an hotel for the day, of course, he said. A part of the Hotel de Luxor is still open. It is but a step. This way. And we trailed along behind him, with a crowd of beggars and dirty children clamoring beside us till we reached the entrance to the hotel grounds. There's been no tourist traffic this season, Davis went on, and the other hotels are closed. But Monsieur Pagnon has managed to hold on. Cooks own the hotel, and I suppose it was a matter of pride to keep it open. As soon as the ladies are settled, I should like you to see the caravan. I think you will find it satisfactory. Fifty men and ten camels, as you suggested. I had hard work getting the camels. The British have commandeered every one they could lay their hands on. These have been commandeered, but not yet delivered, and their owners making a little extra money renting them to us. I had to agree that we would pay for any that died or was injured. That was all right, Creel agreed. I don't see why any of them should die. They won't. But there's a superstition that it is bad for a camel to photograph it. Kills its soul or something like that. Some of the natives are a little trembly about standing in front of a camera. But they won't object if they can move about, as that breaks the spell. I couldn't get any horses. The British swept them all up right at the start. But I got a good strong donkey for each of us. And supplies for two weeks. You said two weeks, I think? There was a feverish eagerness about Davis, as though he feared he might awake at any moment and find all this a dream. And he looked at Creel as though he would like to pinch him and make sure he was really there. Oh, yes, said Creel. Two weeks will be ample. How long does it take to get to this oasis? Two days. We start this evening and travel till midnight. Then we rest till an hour before sunrise and start again and push on to a watering place which we should reach about ten o'clock. We will rest there during the heat of the day, and start again as soon as it is cool enough. If the ladies are not too fatigued, we will push on till we reach the oasis. It sounds pretty strenuous, Creel commented. We can, of course, take another day if necessary, said Davis. You will find the oasis very pleasant. The photographs looked promising, said Creel. They didn't do it justice. They couldn't, protested Davis eagerly, and the ruins are splendid. I was just getting properly into them when the government ordered me back to the river. There were some bands of Arabs about, and they were afraid I'd be attacked. I didn't think there was any danger, and offered to take all the risk and responsibility of staying, but they wouldn't listen. The British are a bullheaded race. It's no good arguing with them. I found that out. I was nearly wild. It almost made me pro-German. What happened to the Arabs? questioned Creel. Oh, they were captured or driven back into the desert, Davis hastily assured him. They never got anywhere near this part of Egypt. There was never really any danger. But I couldn't get permission to go back. Lord knows I tried. How you got it, I can't imagine. Not that I care, he added quickly, seeing Creel's cryptic smile. It's enough for me that you did get it. The Commandant here was certainly astonished when the order came. We were at the hotel by this time, and Monsieur Pagnon greeted us with a warmth which told of many empty rooms. But he was desolated when he learned it was only for the day. The women decided they would rest till afternoon, and then visit the ruins. Creel and I went off with Davis to take a look at the caravan. I'm glad you are ready to start at once, Davis said, as we threaded our way through the town. I was afraid you might wish to remain here for a time. 
but every day more and more sand must be drifting into my excavations, and the sooner we get to work there, the better. You understand, of course, Creel pointed out dryly, that what we have come to Egypt for is to take pictures, not to dig up buried cities. Certainly, I understand. Certainly, Davis assured him. That was made very clear in the letters from the museum. But so little remains to be done there that I'm sure there will be time. His voice trailed away nervously, and he walked on with bent head, pulling abstractedly at his beard. It was evident that Davis was interested considerably more in his excavations than in our picture, which was natural enough, but he certainly had got a good caravan together, as we found when we reached the camp. Fifty of the most picturesque scoundrels I have ever seen, a herd of ten camels, a dozen donkeys, and as many goats. What are the goats for? Creel demanded. I'm not going to eat goat. They are principally for the milk, Davis explained. They are very necessary. Creel grunted skeptically. The smell of the goats was not alluring. Couldn't we take some condensed milk? he asked. Goat's milk is much better. You will see. Of course, I can get some condensed milk if you wish, but we will need the goats for the natives. They are very fond of the milk when it is sour. They will go with us more cheerfully and work better if they know they are to get some now and then. It is a luxury for them. Well, it isn't for me, said Creel. But I suppose you know best. Is there any danger of these cutthroats murdering us some night? He added, casting his eyes over the motley crowd. Oh, not at all, answered Davis with a smile. They have been selected very carefully. They're all good workers, and vouched for by Mustafa. I was going to inquire who vouched for Mustafa, but at that moment that worthy himself came hurrying forward, his face wreathed in smiles, one hand against his heart, to welcome us to the camp. He showed us about as proudly as though he were Barnum exhibiting his circus. It was a good deal like a circus, and I reflected that Digby and Ma Creel at least ought to be happy. I had never realized how much dunnage it took to maintain a party two weeks in the desert, and I was pretty sure that Creel hadn't either, from the way he stared at it. It was all spread out for final inspection before being packed up, and there was certainly an awful lot of it. There was a sleeping tent for the men, and another for the women, a tent for a dining and living room, and another to serve as a storeroom for our supplies. And when I looked at the supplies, I was reminded of the photographs I had seen of the British supply base at Gallipoli. Do you mean to say that ten camels can carry all of this stuff? Creel demanded. Oh, very easy, sir, Mustafa assured him. Each man can carry a hundred pounds, Davis explained. I don't think our packs will run over sixty. A lot of this stuff is bulky, but not very heavy. At that moment, Creel's eye fell upon a great pile of flat wicker baskets with rope handles. What are those for? he asked. It is in those the sand is carried from the excavation, Davis explained. They are very light, he added, and two men can carry the lot of them. If you are really going to have pictures of excavating, he went on, for Creel's face was rather grim, you've got to have the implements to do it with. I suppose that's so, Creel assented, but don't overdo it, Professor. What did all this stuff cost? About $2,500. The war has run the price up on a good many things. I have the inventory, if you care to check it over. 
No, said Creel, running his eye over the outfit. I can see it's worth every cent of that. What do we pay these brigands? Four piastres a day. How much is a piastre? About five cents. What? A piastre is about five cents. They get about twenty cents a day. Hmm, commented Creel. No labor unions in Egypt, evidently. They get their board, too, of course, Davis added. The stuff they eat is included in the 2500 Oh, certainly. They do not require a great deal. The camels, tents, donkeys, and camp dunnage will cost a $1,000 for the two weeks, pro rata if we stay longer. And Mustafa will expect a present if everything goes well, he added in an aside. Say, $100. I think I can run to that, if he makes good, said Creel. My compliments, Professor. I knew from the first that you would be a good investment. Oh, I know the ropes, said Davis. They know they don't dare try to overcharge me. Besides, this is a bad season, and they're glad to get a job at any price. If you're satisfied, I'll tell them to begin to pack up. All right, said Creel. I don't know why I shouldn't be satisfied. Davis nodded to the waiting Mustafa, and a moment later one would have thought a riot had broken out in the camp as the laborers under Mustafa's eye began to pack the supplies. Creel walked over to where old Digby was perched like a sentinel on our pile of baggage. Is all the stuff here? he asked. Every piece, said Digby, with satisfaction, and I'm going to stay by it and see that none of it gets away. That's right, Creel commended and keep the film cases under cover. This sun is something fierce. Digby nodded and resumed his seat. We can start, I think, at five o'clock, said Davis, as we prepared to depart. I should like to show the ladies about the ruins, but I have so much to do that I'm afraid. That's all right, Creel broke in. They can get a guide at the hotel. Besides, Billy here is available. Cameramen never have anything to do. Not that he knows anything about ruins, but that doesn't matter. You run back to the hotel, Billy, he added, and make yourself useful. I think I'll stay here with Digby a while. And so it presently happened that, accompanied by a guide secured by Monsieur Pagnol, I sallied forth with the women to visit the Temple of Luxor, which stands close to the river, not far from the hotel. I should like to say something about that temple, and about the ruins at Karnak, to which we drove an hour later but they have nothing to do with this story. And besides, they have been described by far more competent pens than mine. Only I came away from them with a considerably more exalted opinion of the ancient Egyptians than of the modern ones. They certainly knew how to build. I'd never imagined that such ruins existed anywhere on earth. Creel took a short look at them, too, with an eye for possible locations for some of the later scenes of his picture and at four o'clock, tearing ourselves away from the commandant and two aides who had called, and were making themselves very agreeable indeed, we all sat down to the last meal we should eat amid civilized surroundings for some time. We were a little thoughtful and silent. This trip into the desert, seen thus close at hand, loomed up as considerably more formidable than it had appeared from New York. I think even Creel was just a little nervous over it but he pretended to take it as all in the day's work, and the rest of us followed his lead as well as we could. Then Davis was at the door with two carriages. Monsieur Pagnon, from the steps, wished us a pleasant journey and safe return, 
and we drove away toward the camp. Long before we reached it, we were aware of a hideous uproar, a vibrant squealing as though a hundred pigs were being killed at once, and Molly, who was in my carriage, edged a little closer to me. What is that terrible noise? she quavered. Davis laughed as he saw her alarmed countenance. They're loading the camels, he explained. And then we drove into the camp, and I saw that every camel, crouched upon its belly on the ground, was protesting at the top of its voice as the natives tightened the straps which secured its load. I never knew that a camel could yell so loud. The poor things, protested Molly. Those brutes are killing them. But Davis only laughed again, and indeed we found out later that a camel yells just as loud when its load is being taken off as when it is being put on. I suppose the camel thinks it is part of the game. Then the carriages stopped, and Mustafa hurried forward and helped the ladies to alight. His brown face was shining with excitement. All is ready, he announced. And the donkeys were lit up, and the saddles adjusted. And pretty soon we filed out eastward, toward the hills which border the Arabian desert. End of chapter 9